Would you please uh, open a Bible to the Gospel of Mark? This morning I want to take us into the first century eyewitness account of the historical figure who was known as Yeshua, or who we refer to in English as Jesus, the one who was known as the Christ. This text, referred to as the Gospel of Mark, was written during the reign of the oppressive and opulent Roman Empire, whose pride and power was slowly collapsing in on itself and gradually falling apart. Meanwhile, the early followers of Jesus were spreading into Rome and beyond in Africa and in Asia with a life-saving and life-giving message about the Creator God who revealed Himself to ancient Israel and uniquely had come into His creation as Israel's Messiah, the Christ, in order to expose the corrupt empire and to redeem the elect of God in Christ from ages past to the present and into the future. Mark's Gospel documents the reality of this saving work and of this history, and further, it unpacks the theology that is woven through it all uh, for the growing international multi-ethnic followers of Jesus in the ancient world all the way up to today that have become known as the Church of Christ. Mark's Gospel became a cherished book for the church in those early days. More profoundly than being a cherished book of history, it became acknowledged not merely as a historical writing, but also as a sacred text, Scripture, from God, uh, to be received not only by the original audience who received Mark's Gospel, to be received not only by them as, as the writings of a man, but to be received as the Word of God. And that Word stands in the history of the church, and the history of men, through the sands of time, while the Lord tarries. It is a text that was written for those who were waiting for the Lord to come. We wait, He, he tarries, as we, as we hear in the ancients in their prayers echoing out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. This text was to inform those who were waiting for His coming. What had happened? What was taking place? What was to come? What is in front of you, if you have the Gospel of Mark open, is not merely an accurately printed copy of a manuscript uh, that comes from men's and, 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 and men and pens, uh, particularly the pen of Mark. It's so much more. What you have in front of you is supernatural. It is the inspired Word of God. It is providentially packed with God's Word and providentially placed in, the, in, in, in front of you this morning and in front of God's people so that you would have life and you would have love and you would have truth and you would have transformation. This text, indeed, the, all the texts of Scripture offer this to us. If we come and we say, Speak, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. That said, with Mark in front of you, with God's Word in front of you, would you move from Mark specifically to the 12th chapter of this authentic text I want to take you into Mark chapter 12 as we begin today and give you some cross-references from Scripture to theologically situate what we are going to read in the 12th chapter of Mark. And then after doing that, we are going to move into Mark chapter 10 and explore an important section in this book about the Savior, Jesus Christ, and His wondrous worth as the glorious eternal Son of God in the flesh who died for the people of Israel, who, who died for the church, the church who He commissioned to carry His love and His truth until He returns. He comes again to make all things new. And again, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. But when He comes, may He find us worshiping Him and serving Him to the very end. Now my hope and my prayer for today is that in hearing this message, you will be stirred in your soul regarding the infinite worth of God and the worthiness of the Son of God in flesh, our Savior, Jesus. In keeping with this hope, the title of my sermon this morning is Worthy of All. 
in this sermon worthy of all, I, I, I want to emphasize the infinite worth of the Savior. I, I want to share with you about Him, and I want to draw you into beholding the glory of the Holy Triune God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Savior who is of infinite worth is the Son enfleshed. The Son who is one with the Father and the Spirit. The Son has come and made Himself one with humanity. In solidarity with us, He stands. He is holy God and holy man. Mark, along with the other eyewitnesses, wrote about this. They not only wrote about this, they died for this. This, this wasn't something that they were fabricating so as to make fame or to make riches or to get a girl or a record deal or whatever, you know, more likes, crunch, crunch the like button on the Gospel of Mark. They weren't doing any of that. They gave their lives for this. That said, Mark and others were not writing to create a new religion. Rather, they wrote to bring truth, to expose the empty religions of men, the silly spiritualities that are manufactured by mortals for profit and power and position, which in the end will come to an end. Figments of spiritual imagination, or just that, figments and imagination. That said, what we have in front of us is not figment, it's not imagined, it's not manufactured, it's revealed. It's revealed. Now hopefully by now you have Mark 12 in front of you, which in a few minutes you will see speaks to today's message concerning God's worth. But as I said, we'll do some cross-referencing as we get there. So as we consider God's worth, let's look at the first point on your outline, His worth. By way of introduction, I want to situate ourselves for understanding these texts that will emphasize His worth and today's message worthy of all. So that said, by way of introduction, what does the word worth mean? If you looked up the word worth in a standard dictionary, you would see that this word is used to describe the value or the merit of someone or something. If something is of great value, we speak of its worthiness. On the other hand, if something is of no value, what do we say? We say it's worthless. If it has no value, it's worthless. That is to say, it has no good qualities. Hence, it is of no worth. It's not even worth your time. And yet, let's be honest, our lives are filled with things that are not worth our time. Sadly, we, ha we have a way of giving our time and giving much more, giving our very souls to things that are worthless, things that do not matter. Many men squander years of their lives chasing after pipe dreams and pursuing peddlers of, of all sorts of things, false spiritualities, dead religion, paths to peace, paths to being happy, do this, do that, do this, do that, and it comes, it goes, this is going to make you happy, and at the end it's just empty ways of living. Sadly, some may never come to their senses and they will go kicking and screaming against acknowledging the infinite worth of the God who is. The God who is. Now, meanwhile, our Lord, is, who is of infinite worth, He stands he, he, eternally uh, priceless. Uh, he's, he's of such infinite value that it's appropriate to say He's priceless. He's, he's of infinite value. And he stands, meanwhile, as, as men are going about chasing after things that are, are worthless. And we all know what that is. We've all done that. We're all prone to wandering and, and doing that. But meanwhile, God stands calling out to creation to behold Him and to see His worth and to see His glory. He's not doing this because He's some narcissistic, like, look at how awesome I am. The problem with the narcissistic person is that they're not actually good. They have an inflated view of themselves. 
They think they're pretty, but they're kind of not. You know, they think their, their music is good. It's kind of not. You know, they take a lot of selfies and they do use a lot of filters. You know, that's the narcissism. They want to make themselves something that they are not. But God isn't taking selfies that he has to doctor up. He's of infinite worth. And his, his glory, his infinite worth, he cries out not only to his people, but to the entire creation. The entire creation. We read in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Look, look at this. You see, glory is the quality of something that is. Glory is the quality of something that is or someone who is worthy. Now, because He is glorious, He is worthy. In the book of Revelation, we, we read of this heavenly scene that gives us a, a glimpse beyond the, the mere general revelation of, 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 of God's glory and His worth being seen in the heavens and creation in the cosmos. But we are taken in the book of Revelation into the heavens itself, into the courtroom of God, and we're given a glimpse of God's glorious providential power and His worth. We're invited to see the praises of those in heaven, angels and men, and they cry out, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, look at this, worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. You see, the, the heavens cry out to the God who is the triune God, the one who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, who is adored and praised and exalted in the heavens where created things, angels and, and humans, angels and, and humans, the dead in Christ in the heavens, Granny Jones and Gabriel and, you know, so on and so forth. They're, they're in the heavens and they're crying out praises specifically of his worth, of his great incalculable value. A moment ago, I, I, I used the phrase, the God who is. The God who is. And here I, I have to clarify. I use this phrase, the God who is, and I have to clarify who God is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. I say the God who is because there are gods who are not. Gods who have never created a thing, let alone have they ever existed a day in real life. They only exist in the minds of those who make them up. That, that said, if, if human minds never knew of the true God who is, He still would be the God who is. Follow me, for God's existence does not require our belief any more than a mighty lion in the jungle needs others to believe He is there. If a lion exists, that lion is there. And one ought not to journey into that jungle presuming his non-existence. Analogously, one ought not to presume the non-existence of the God who is, let alone hold on to a lowercase g God who is not. Let me highlight this point that whether one believes in God who is, or whether or not they believe in God, it does not have any bearing on God's existence. Because reality is indifferent to our beliefs about it. You, you might think, oh, I weigh this much, and then you step on a scale and you meet reality. And you can change your thought about what you weigh if you're on, you know, New Year's weight loss plans. And you see, you don't change your thought, I weigh this much, the scale doesn't change. You see, reality is indifferent to what you think about it. Uh, any more than believing that two plus two isn't four. You see, if, if, if no one in the universe believed two plus two was four, it would not change the fact that two plus two is actually four because reality is indifferent to our beliefs. Either a thing exists or a thing doesn't exist any, any more than if there was an undiscovered star in the galaxy. 
Uh, right? I mean, there's lots of stars in the galaxy. So, so, so for sake of, you know, conversation here, let's say there's, there's a star that's out there that we haven't discovered. It's safe to say there's plenty of them, but let's say there's a star in the galaxy that hasn't been discovered. Now, the fact that we don't believe in it yet because it hasn't been discovered doesn't mean anything. Because before discovering the star, the star was already there. Before Sir Isaac Newton's discovery of the law of gravity, gravity was already there. So too God has always been there. He is before creation. He is without beginning or end. He is the beginner of all that lives. As the beginner, as the creator of all things, God is worthy. We even created then are indebted to Him. He gave us life. He gave us life. He gave us this planet. He, he gave us all of this. It is fitting that our response to, would be to believe in Him. Uh, it, it is fitting that our response would be more to deeply inside of ourselves acknowledge His worth, Him. Not a generic God, not a figment of our own imagination God, but the God who is. Now, I emphasize that because, you know, many will say, oh, I believe in God or whatever. You say, yeah, but that, that doesn't mean anything. Who is the God who you believe in? There's a God who is, there's a God men want, and the two are not the same. You could say you believe in, in my wife, say, and I say, well, who is my wife? And if you start saying, well, she's, you know, she's the seven-foot blonde lady or whatever. You know, oh, that's not my wife. You see, if you believe things that are not true of her, then you, you're not talking about the same one. There's a God who is and there's a God who men want. He, he gave us life. Our response should be to believe in Him. Our, uh, he didn't leave us in the dark about who He is. He's not a deadbeat dad who got the girl pregnant and just left, leaving the kid to... To, to cotton swab and surf online to try to figure out who his dad is. He's, he's revealed himself. We ought to believe in him. We ought further to acknowledge his worth. Think about it. If someone saved your life, what would your response be? If, if you were, if you were, your appendix just burst inside of you, you rush to the hospital and the, the doctors, they rustle around, they get that thing out and they save your life, what would your response be? You'd see the, the worth of them and what they have done. You would acknowledge that. If, if, if you were re apprehended by some murderer or something that had you locked in the, the mall or your house or whatever, and the SWAT team comes in and, and, and rescues you, what would your response be to the officer who rescued you or the doctor who rescued you? Your response would be to acknowledge the, the worth of what they had done. They saved your life. How much more to someone who has given you life, what would your response be? I mean, even in our lives, right? We think of our mothers who carried us to term and birthed us, and we give thanks for our mothers. And even if your mothers weren't there, even if your mothers abandoned you, even if your mothers were horrible, you still give thanks for them because they gave you life. I think of uh, Tupac, the, modern, you know, the late modern poet in North America, he had a song, Dear Mama, that was a tribute to his mom, Afeni Shakur. He has a line in the song, Even as a crack fiend, Mama, you always was a black queen, Mama. He loved his mom, even though she was addicted to crack cocaine, even though she had these things in her life that scarred him, that hurt him. She was his queen. How do you respond to the one who has given you life? Even, even a failed mother, you respond with, hey, that's my queen. How much more an infinitely worthy and perfect God who has given you life, how we ought to respond. And notice that the text here that is in front of you, it reminds us that God not only gave us life, look at it, but He also sustains life. 
every breath that we breathe is on loan from Him. The text says what? Quote, because of your will they existed. God gave you life and He is constantly sustaining that life in common grace. This means that God is debtor to none. He does not owe us life. Now I say this because as uh, the fact of the matter that we all humans, I say this, He doesn't owe us life because the fact of the matter, we all humans, all humans have rebelled against God, the giver of life. And so He has every right to take life back from us. It is not only by God's grace that we have an average expectancy in, in our culture that we talk about. I mean, our country ranks quite high. The average expectancy in our culture is 77 years for men and 81 years for women. In, indeed, that's a, very, it's a privilege for modern Western culture to live as long as we do. But it is not merely a, a matter of medicine, not merely a matter of medicine, not solely uh, 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 you know, due to science. It is not, it is not a, a product of physical fitness. It is not due to diet. No, it is because of God's will that we exist and we live and we move and we have our being. And again, we don't deserve it. Why don't we deserve it? Because we've rebelled. You rebel against the one who gives life and the punishment that fairly fits that crime is the taking back of life. And so we die. And we face the consequence of our rebellion. Age expectancy, oh, that, you know, that's great, that's 77 years, but 10 out of 10 people still die. We've rebelled against the one who's given us life. And so life is taken back. That's fair. The punishment fits the crime. The person who thinks that's not fair is just, they're, they're, they've, they've run off into emotionalism. They're, they're flying in the face of the logic and the evidence. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person watching online, there's not a person on this planet who hasn't rebelled. We all feel guilt and shame. We, we've rebelled against our own words. You know, it's it, New Year's resolutions. How are those going? Did you make it through January? You know, we say we're going to do things that we don't. We, we, we violate our, our own rules, let alone God's. Unlike the heavens that are crying out, as we see here in Psalm 19, we don't declare the work of His hands consistently. Instead, we rely on the work of these hands. These hands. And, and, and we, justify, we justify it while we have blood on our hands. Further, we try to convince ourselves that we're not so bad. I, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm a good person. I'm spiritual. I, you know, I meditate. I take vitamins and stuff like that. You know, we, we grade ourselves on a scale that is based on those who are around us. You know, I, you know I'm, not, I'm no Hitler. You know, I'm no Hitler. You know, it's like, why is that your moral compass? I hear that so often, you know. Imagine someone coming to the house to take your daughter out on a date, and you go, you know, are you a good person? Well, you know, I mean, I'm no Hitler. Yeah, close the door. You're not getting anywhere. We cherry-pick those who are under ourselves. Like the infamous publican. If you were here at the public reading of Scripture as we began our service today, if you weren't, I'd encourage you, come on time. The worship service begins with God's Word and prayer. And this morning we began with, with, with Luke 18. And there's that publican, and, and he comes to pray... And he, and he looks at the people out there and he says, God, thank you that I am not like the other people. The beautiful acknowledgement of the worth of God in Psalm 19 from the heavens, it's, it's contrasted with the response of humans like the publican who, who don't acknowledge, hey, I've rebelled against you. Hey, I'm in the wrong. Hey, I, I need your forgiveness. Hey, hey, but they presume that they're fine and they fly in the face of seeing his worth. Psalm 19, that's in front of you. Let's contrast it with Romans 1. I'll put it in front of you. Verse 20, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Do you see the contrast of Romans 1 with Psalm 19? Humans in their depravity deny God's worth, while the heavens in Romans 19 declare God's worth. Romans 1.21 says they did not honor Him. They did not give thanks. They, they treated God as if He was not worthy. Now, mind you, who's the they in Romans 1? It's all of us. It's humanity. It's us. And unlike the publican who was looking down on others, as we saw in Luke, the text is not trying to lift itself over us so, so as to, you know, oh, you guys, you guys, or whatever. It's trying to help us. Pointing out that, hey, you've rebelled, hey, you've made mistakes, hey, you've sinned. That's, that's not like, eh, you know, it's not trying to point the finger. It's giving us an accurate diagnosis of our condition. If you went to the doctor and you had cancer and the doctor's like, you know what, uh, you know, he gets the blood results, he's sitting at his desk and you're waiting in there in that goofy little thing just trying to keep your privates, you know, in that thing and you're sitting in there anxious and he gets the results and sees you had cancer, but he's like, you know what, who am I to judge? You know, I don't want to impose my standards on him of science or whatever. I'll just go in there and tell him, you know, hey, everything's fine, you know, uh, to each his own. Live your best life now. You'd say that's like the most unloving thing that you could do. You have to tell him that he has a condition, and that's not unloving to do. And you, you give him a remedy and you say, look, we're going to work on this. And so, too, the physician of our souls points this out for those purposes. In our sin, though, we'll, we'll, we'll react and we won't want to see His value. We won't live as though He is infinitely worthy. How are we to live? How are we to live? That's why I asked for you to turn to Mark 12. So we've seen some contrasts here. Creation cries out He's worthy. Oh, but fallen man cries out He isn't. Now let's hear the law of the Lord in Mark chapter 12 telling us how we are to live. Would you draw your eyes at verse 29? Verse 29 is on the heels of Jesus being asked about the greatest commandment of God. The greatest of the commandments of God. The mitzvah. Oh, what, what's the greatest commandment? They're asking Jesus. And then Jesus responds in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He begins by talking about the God who is. Do you see, do you see that? Let, let, me, let me tell you who God is. Let me, let me break this down for you. Who God is. You need to know who God is. There is a God who is. There's a God men want. As I said, Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to tell you who God is. The God of Israel. The God who is one. Let, let me make this really specific. You need to see this. Mark 12, 29. The foremost. Hero Israel. Mark 12, 29. The Lord our God is one. So we're talking about the God who is. Now let me tell you about His will for us. You shall, verse 30, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. So to answer the question, how should we live? We should love God. That's seeing His worth, right? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. With our all. You know what all means? It's been said that all means all. That's all all means. That's a great definition. All means all. That's all all means. Love God with your all. Now why? 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 Because He's worthy. Because He's worthy. Hence, giving Him our all is a worthy response to His worthiness. It's, it's fitting. You, when you give yourself to something that's of worth, you go, why are you working so hard to, to feed your kids? You go, because they're my kids. They're worthy. You know, why are you working so hard to finish school? Because oh, it's worth finishing school. You see, people don't ask why you're doing it when they acknowledge the worth of the thing. Giving your all is a worthy response to his worthiness. It's fitting. God is worth no less than our all. This God who created all, that's a fitting response. 
This God who not only created, but this God who offers forgiveness to those who have rebelled against Him. And He offers forgiveness not by making them jump through religious or spiritual loopholes and giving them a list of, of, you do this, then I'll like you back. But He gives the gift of faith. And He offers the payment in the place of those that have rebelled against Him. He's, he's given the payment. He's given you the power. He's given you the cross. He's given you salvation. And so our response to the Christ who hangs on the cross and, and our response to the Creator of, of all creatures, from all creatures, should be our all. God deserves 100%. And there's not a person in this room who gives Him 100%. That's the reality. God doesn't deserve 80%. He doesn't deserve 60%. He doesn't deserve 50%. And yet, sadly, many live 50-50 with God, 60-40 with God, 80-20 with God. Even among His people, those who profess faith in Him, we see this phenomenon. Many who profess faith in Him, though they're exposed by this phenomenon because their faith isn't real faith that is given by God. Their faith is a faith that is mustered by men and it's exposed by their lip service. They say they believe, they say, oh, he's everything to them, and yet their actions bear witness against them and to us if we're honest with ourselves. In addition to the witness of our actions, the Lord Jesus sees the heart and he knows what is within. Jesus sees what is within us. Now, in saying that, I must caution the proud who can hear that and take comfort. Because many in our culture, you know, they emphasize, oh, what's inside of us? You know, what's inside of us? You know, you see, I see the heart. What's inside? It's really good. Like every Disney movie is indoctrinated little kids to think this way. Unfortunately, they never turn into adults and they fall into this Disneyland sort of phenomenon. Everything inside is good. There's a secular spiritual doctrine in our day that dogmatically claims that humans are, are we're just basically good. And so if you go and you find yourself, then you'll be a better person. And yet the scriptures bear witness against this, that the heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus, on, on his mouth, Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, in the case of Mark 12, this is actually the case. Jesus is bringing up, you know, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Let me tell you, you acknowledge God's worth by loving him with your all. And in the case of Mark 12, we see the man who's asking the question. It was a matter of lip service. It was a matter of just being spiritual. It was a matter of empty religion. Recall verses 29 and 30 I shared with you before we jumped into the text. 29 and 30 were in response to a question. The man asking the question had a heart that was far from God. In Mark chapter 12, verses 32 through 44, you see that loud and clear. After answering the question, Jesus goes on to expose his heart, surfacing the man's personal greed in his heart, and also his corporate culpability by participating unjustly in a social order whose corruption systemically played a hand in oppressing widows. He is soiled by social injustice, and he's consumed with covetousness within his heart. His individual sin stains him. His corporate social sin stains him. He's got horizontal and vertical issues with his neighbor and with God. Now, in the presence of the Lord, the human heart and human society are exposed this way as this man was experiencing. Sadly, the man asking the question doesn't want to go into the experience and be drawn into repentance and humility, acknowledging his sin and finding his salvation. Instead, he disappears into the darkness into the story, and he's gone. The man evaporates. He's lost. He's worse than lost. He's dead in sin. And this brings up an important point for the reader of Scripture. You see, there's a temptation to pick up the Bible and to be self-righteous and to read of men like this, dead in their sin, 
who are lost and arrogantly questioning God. And the temptation for us is to look at a man like this and go, what a, what a, what a lame guy. What a lame guy, you know. There he is and he misses out. You know, what a lame guy. You know, because if I was there, you know, this is what I would have done. There's a temptation for us not only to do that with the Bible, but, you know, with the news and, or just driving in your car. You can look at people and go, look at those people. Like the publican that we began our service with in our public reading this Lord's Day. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. No, you are them. You are the man. We ask questions of God just like this man. We ask questions of Christ just like this man. We are looking for loopholes. We're pivoting. We're, we're jostling around. And then we hear the right answer from God. And we respond with, you know, maybe I could do it. Maybe I could. Maybe I could. Maybe we hide. We shift. You see, Jesus' answer exposed not only the man's need, but He exposes our need in all of us. We're called to give God our all. And that is proper and that is right, as I've been emphasizing, because He is worthy. And however, we don't do that. And if left to our own devices, we too would dissipate into the storyline. We would be lost. But behold, the Son who has come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus spoke of there being two roads or two gates. Let me put the text in front of you. One that is wide that leads to lostness and death and the other that is narrow that leads to life. And in the ministry of Jesus, He is constantly exposing sin and He's doing so in love. He's doing this in love. Again, the, Jesus isn't shaking His finger, look at you. That, that, that hand didn't come to shake the finger. That hand came to, to have nails in it. He, he, he came to, He's saying these things and exposing these things because He wants us to see our need for the Savior. As I said with the illustration, a loving physician is going to tell their patient what is wrong with their body. And it's not a matter of being judgmental. It's a matter of healing. Oh, He's come to heal. He's come to save. He's come to give His, his life. He's come to give wisdom for those who He saves on the narrow path, on the tight gate in this rebellious and fallen world. That leads to the next point on the outline. His wisdom. I'll continue emphasizing His worth, but let's talk about His wisdom. Let's move from from uh, Mark chapter 12 to Mark chapter 10. Turn your Bibles to the left a little. So we've, we've seen a man who didn't acknowledge the worth of God. We've seen the law of God that calls us to His worth. We hear the law of God and acknowledge that we, we don't keep that and we're reminded that we need one who has. We're reminded that the Son has come and He did all. All means all. That's all all means. And that's all Jesus did. Perfectly loved and perfectly gave Himself for us. And, and before giving Himself, we see Him with His disciples offering them wisdom for navigating this life, this narrow and, and wide dimensions that we experience in this life, these roads that don't cross. We see the way of the world and we see the way of Jesus come to head in the ministry of the incarnate Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We, we, we see the way of loving God with our all and we see the sad way juxtaposed, loving Him less. In the eyes of Christ and Holy Scripture, there are two ways to go. All, all, or nothing. Two ways. All or nothing. Two roads. Narrow or wide. Jesus or the world. In, Ma in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus pointedly said, either you're for me or against me. You can't have one foot in and one foot out the other. That, that's what a relationship is, though, isn't it? Right? In, ma in marriage, you're like, you know, I, you know, I'll love you till, you know, right? Oh, well, death do it, you know, or I'll, I'll come home six nights of the week, but, you know, on the seventh, you know, I got to have some me time, you know. No. It's all, it's all or nothing. He said, will you marry me? I, I guess, you know. No, no, no. You know, it's, it's yes, not I guess. It's, it's all or nothing. That's what loving relationships are. 
Either you're for this or you're not. In the passage in Mark 10, we, we see a man go away and he goes into the world. He, he wasn't for it. He, go, he goes the opposite direction. And, and then Jesus pulls his disciples in and he goes, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. See the people of the world. We're going to begin in verse 17. Jesus is on the road. He's making a final journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This time, he's not only going to celebrate the Passover, but he will literally become the Passover lamb who will be slain for the sins of the world. In an innocent animal giving its life for guilty people. You should, you should be scandalized by that. You should be scandalized by that. You look at that and you say, why is innocence being sacrificed for guilty? What's going on here? Because we've rebelled against the Creator. And so a created, innocent thing gives its life in, in, in our place. And, and, and these are just shadows of what was to come. And the Son fulfills that. Let me show you this sub-point on the outline. We're going to look at His wisdom. We'll look at the people of the world. And we'll look at the path of the way. So we're talking about the people of the world. And Jesus wants His disciples to see this. The first sub-point is meeting Jesus. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 17. And he was, he, he was uh, setting out on a journey and a man came up to him and he knelt down before him and he asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So we're introduced to a man. Many of your Bibles will have a subtitle, something like the rich young ruler. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told he's young. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told he's a ruler. Okay, so, so piece it together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, you know, our canonical Gospels, he's the rich young ruler. You might say he's a bit of a baller, he's a shot caller, he's a young man, he's strong, he's nice, he's got a sweet car, he's got nice clothes. These are all the images that drive our culture, health and youth and money. It's pretty much the world's concept of happiness. And it's tragic because you can't stay young. You can't stay healthy. You will age, you will die. Youth and health will fade, money will fade, you'll run out of it. You might have it on earth, but you can't take it with you. And even if you could take your money with you, heaven is paved with gold, and so your bank account is just a bag of concrete. Even if you could take your health with you, so what? Everyone's resurrected. They're not going to be impressed with that. Well, our, our world hasn't changed from Jesus' day. People back then chased those things, and we still chase those things today. And in our sin, we don't see that we do it. Because we often compare ourselves to the extremes, like the publican that we saw in Luke's Gospel as we began our service. And so we look at others and we see these extremes. You go, I don't live that way. I don't live that way. I mean, I'm no Kardashian. You know, I don't live like those Kardashians. I'm not chasing after stuff. You won't see me on MTV Cribs or whatever. I, I just want a modest house, a pretty spouse, a two-storied, uh, you know, with rooms and little kids who behave and stuff. Well, what are those? Uh, you know, a pool in the back, you know. Not a big pool. I mean, just a, you know, a modest pool. I want the nice schools that I can send them to, you know. I want a, maybe a timeshare, you know, maybe a, maybe a cabin or something. Just a small, I mean, not a big one. You know, we'll have some vacations, you know. And in our rationalizing, we miss, oh, you're like the rich young ruler. You're just chasing after all of this stuff. But you can justify it because it's not as extreme as the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But you, too, are under its spell. And hear Christ, he says, will you turn? Will you run? Will you, will you be set free from this? Times haven't changed. Jesus is exposing the timeless temptations. Will you value that stuff over me? Again, we're talking about worthy of all. He's worthy of all. And it's worth noting here that in terms of times not changing and cultural similarities here, in Jesus' day, there was a religious spiritual culture that was a lot like ours and what we refer to as the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. 
You see these goofball televangelists walking around in silk suits with comb-overs and jets and mansions talking about, send me your seed money, you know, give me your money and you will be blessed. And so there's this idea in their day that is similar to our day that if you have money, if you have success, you must be blessed by God. You have not because you ask not. And this prosperity gospel was true in their day. And so the idea for this man in his culture would have been that he's blessed, he's favored, he's rich, he's, he's young, he has it all. And, he, you know, and, and, and we're going to see how Jesus flips it on that head. He's going to say, no, 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 you don't have it all. We're going to see that. But notice first how the guy approaches Jesus. He comes in with a little, you know, little, little smoozer, good teacher, he starts. He starts good teacher. That's a very unusual form in that culture. This is absolute flattery. Jewish religious literature, we don't see rabbis being referred to as good rabbis. Only God and His law were considered good in the Jewish context. And Jesus uses that when He responds and says, Why do you call me good? No one, Jesus says, is good except God. Now, Jesus is not denying that He is God. Jesus never says in the Gospel accounts, Anywhere do we have recorded, I am not God. He is God the Son in the flesh. Jesus, what he's doing here with his rhetoric, is giving the guy a chance to respond and to show the empty flattery that is at hand. More deeply, he's giving the guy a, an opportunity to see Christ's deity, to see his worth. You are, why would you call me good except God alone? The proper response would have been exactly, I know that you are God alone. I know you are the God of Israel, sent of the Father in the flesh. And yet he misses this. He wasn't interested in the worth of the Christ, the identity of the Christ. He was coming with ulterior motive. And so we see the meeting of Jesus is met with the next point on your outline, the missing of Jesus. He misses that Jesus is God. I think of the irony of the cults today who claim that they believe in Jesus, but they deny he's God. And there's an endless array of them, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and so on and so forth. And they deny the reality of Scripture, the historic professions of faith, that there's one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. If there is one thing in this life, though, that you don't want to miss, it's who's Jesus. You might miss a job opportunity. You might blow a record deal. You might not make it in Hollywood. You might mess up a relationship, but you don't want to mess up Jesus. Watch how Jesus, though, reaches out and tries to show the guy who he is, and, and that while he may have it all, he is really in need. He, he may have the riches, but he is homeless from heaven's vantage point. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud honor from your father and the mother. Just as we saw in Matthew earlier when he's asked a question about what's the greatest commandment, he responds by lifting up the law so that we see our sin, so that he can show us our need for the Savior. Why do you call me good, huh? Oh, he didn't pick up on that. Now let me lift up the law. You know what the law says. And look at how the guy responds. Verse 20. Teacher, I've kept all those from my youth. If I was translating this in the modern times, to say, but I'm spiritual, you know? I meditate. I take vitamins. I'm good. I send out positive vibes, you know? I'm, I'm a good guy, you know? So the guy misses it. Jesus takes him through the commands of God to show him, look, you ha like we, haven't kept, we haven't kept these. And the, the point of lifting up the law isn't to, again, shake the finger. It's to show you your need. When you break a law, you come under the, the, the penalty of the law. You're not rewarded for doing the law. When you break it, you come under the penalty of it. I tell you guys this all the time. 
If I break the law of Penal Code 187 in California of murder, if I murder someone, I can't stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think of all the people I haven't killed. I'm, a, I'm basically a good person. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of people I haven't murdered. It was just this one guy. He kind of had it coming. You know? It doesn't work that way. You're not rewarded for doing what you ought to do. Oh, you didn't kill people. That doesn't make you good. Oh, you meditated. Oh, you what? That doesn't make you good. What are you going to do about the law that you have violated? And so Jesus lifts that up and he gives the, he gives the wrong response. He gives the response of those on the broad road. And look at what Jesus does in verse 21. Jesus felt a love for him and he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus feels a love for him. He loves him. We saw that in the parable of the prodigal son, the other reading that we did at the beginning of, of service and the rejoicing over one who comes to him. And, 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 and here you see, again, it's not the shaking of a finger. This is coming from a place of love. He spoke the hard truth to him. That, that's what love does. Love is confrontational. If someone you love is making a mess of, the, of, of their, their lives, if you love them, you, you, you say something about it. You don't sit by. When you love someone, you, you, you say something. And Jesus says something. He says, look, you fall short of God's law. One thing you lack, and it only takes one thing. And, what, what, you know... Here's, here's the irony, though. You're, you're telling a rich man that he lacks something. You might have money. You might have morals. You might have stuff. You might have, you know, spirituality. But so what? It's not impressing God. It doesn't change the fact of the matter that you violated God's law. You lack something, rich man. You lack something, listener, this morning. And for that man specifically, what he lacked, he was apart from Christ, so he lacked forgiveness. And that is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus lovingly goes to expose the heart to pick one of the idols inside of his heart. And Jesus tells him, hey, look, give this up. Trade earthly ri your earthly riches for heavenly riches. You, are, you're, you, you think under the law you're fine. Well, I'm going I'm to give you a command that I know that you're not going to say, I have done. Sell all of your stuff. Well, I've already done that before. Well, do it again, right? And this is more than a fair trade. You're talking about God. You're saying to God, if God's like, hey, give me all this stuff, it's God. Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave up his Western riches to go be a, in the mission field where he died in poverty and was killed for sharing Christ, he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus tested the man's heart. And by the power of the Spirit this morning, he wants to test your heart. He wants to test my heart. He, he, wants, he wants us to know His love. He wants us to hear His confrontation. He wants us to hear the law of God lifted up. And He wants us to respond, all of us, and going, I, we need You, Jesus. We need You. We lack. We're behind. But as these words, verse 22, He was saddened and He went away grieving, for He was one who owned much property. Now to be clear, the Bible isn't against owning property. It's against property owning us. Money isn't the issue. Greed is the issue. Greed, it, it, you know, is the love of money. It's an excessive anxiety about it. It's marked by a lack of generosity. It's marked by a lack of concern for others. It's marked by a lack of the worth of God because you, you hold on to these things and not trusting Him. Greed is idolatry. Greed is ruining our culture. It's all over the place. We'd be here all morning if we wanted to look at the way of the world and greed and how it's just ruining our food, our clothes, our business, our education. Down the line, it's destructive. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 verse 15 said, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
You be careful with this. It's dangerous stuff. And the rich man wouldn't let go. Indeed, in his sin, he could not let go. He was bound by it. This is the antithesis of the wise men who we celebrate in Christmas. The Magi, the Magi, who Christ's child is there. And what do they do? They give their all. Look at it, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. In front of you, after coming to the house, they saw the Christ child. They fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Notice they don't just bring gifts, they bring worship. The text says they worshipped him. The gold and the gifts, those are just worthy of Jesus. And so is worship. He's worthy of worship. Even the empty-handed can worship him. So if you come without anything, don't worry. I think of Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb of Jesus with her empty hands. And she goes to the empty disciples and she tells them Jesus is risen. And in Matthew 28, we read about how they fell down and worshipped him. They, they, they fell down and they worshipped him, Matthew 28, verse 9. Look at that. They hold on to his feet. They worship him. They're empty-handed. They have nothing. They give him worship. That's the fitting response to the God who is. That's the fitting response to what he has done. We've broken his laws, all of us, and instead of giving us a penalty, he took the penalty on himself. He didn't send a third party to deal with it. He came and he dealt with it himself. There was a mess he didn't hire a hired hand to go clean it up, but he came himself and he did it. Knowing that that gift of him doing it would be rejected, that he would be spit upon, mocked upon, and to this very day there would be people who would call this nonsense and respond in the way that they do. Nevertheless, he responds with compassion and grace and continues to call out. And he'll call out to your very last breath on this planet, come to me, come to me. And you know what? He is worthy. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come, let us worship him. That said, did you know that the word worship, it comes from an old English word, worship, which means to ascribe worth to. You say, what is worship? Worship is the ascribing of worth to something. When you put a price tag on something, you're ascribing worth to it. How much do those shoes cost? How much does that jacket cost? How much does that meal cost? That's worship. You're ascribing worth to it when you put a tag on it. How much does the worship of God, what is that to us? What is its value to us? And so in worship, that's what we're doing. You could be doing something else this morning, but you're ascribing worth by driving here and being here this morning and this day. We give our offering. I could use that money on something else, but I'm giving it. I'm ascribing worth to Him. I, I could be reading something else. I could be doing something else. When we sing, I could be singing something else. Indeed, many, the radio comes on and they sing, oh, they belt it out. And then in church, you get a little, a little hum, a hymn and a haw, right? Prayer, what are we doing? We're, we're ascribing worth. I'm praying because you're worthy. I'm singing because you're worthy. I'm giving because you're worthy. I'm, I'm here on Sunday because you're worthy. I'm fellowshipping with the saints because you're worthy. I'm giving alms to the poor because you're worthy. I'm, I'm going to work and I'm using my job for you because you're worthy. That's all worship. That is the path of the way which is contrasted with the people of the world. In the book of Acts, we see early followers of Jesus were called the way, which is a very fitting description given that Jesus in John 14, 6 said he was the way. So we move from the people of the world meeting Jesus, missing Jesus, to the path of the way, and now we'll look at grieving Jesus, getting Jesus, and finally giving Jesus. Let's move quickly. Jesus, verse 23, looking around at his disciples, he said, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, and Jesus answered, and he said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, needles are small, camels are big, right? 
it doesn't work that way. So people say, oh, archaeologically, there's a place in a, in a you know, thing, and it's a really small hole, and camels can't go through it. Uh, the archaeology on it is a little sketchy, but it's just hyperbole. You know, you can't get a, a camel through an eye of a needle. In the Babylonian Talmud, we see this idiomatic phrase. That in the Babylonian Talmud, an elephant can't go through the eye of a needle. He's, now, he's not saying rich people can't be saved or anything like this. Again, there's not a problem with having stuff. It's when the stuff is having you, as we've already noted. We've already noted that, okay? But, but what Jesus is pointing to his disciples, the people on the way, he's going, how hard will it be? But again, notice how the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The, the message of the gospel isn't do something to be saved. The message of the gospel is something has been done, let me point at the cross, for your salvation. It's not do, 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 scratch God's back and then he'll scratch yours. The message is do, 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 you, don'ted, 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 behold the one who has done to forgive you of what you haven't done. That's the message of the gospel. The question that he asks, set it up as though you could merit your salvation. You can't do that because the laws are already discovered, already discussed. It presumes obedience, so you can't pay that back. And then he goes, how hard will it be? It's absolutely impossible. And so now we move from grieving Jesus to getting Jesus. Look at verse 26. And, then they, and they respond by going, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, it is impossible with people, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Salvation is possible with God because salvation is an act that is done by God. It is an act that is done by God. There aren't people in the world who are sort of bumbling around trying to find the God who is. No one's seeking after the God who is. To be sure, there are spiritual people who are seeking after other gods, gods that don't exist. Romans 3, 1, 3, 11 says, No one seeks God, no, not one. Many are running around on spiritual paths and moral paths and pursuing happiness and pursuing other things other than Him. It's impossible to find that end, but he says, no, look, 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 but it's possible with me because salvation is a gift that he brings. Peter said, behold, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, verse 30, for he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The first will be last, the last will be first. The way of the world, the way of the world, the people of the world, it's the antithesis of the path of the way. The way of the world is going to be turned on its head. In fact, Jesus himself will be turned on his head. You see, he is God and thus he is worthy of praise, but he will be turned on his head and willingly will be sacrificed as a petty slave under the, the horrors of the Roman Empire in order to give his life for us. That leads to the next point of, of giving. We've looked at grieving Jesus, getting Jesus, giving Jesus. Look at verse 33. Behold, Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem so that the Son of Man may be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. Three days, three days later, he will rise from the dead. Remember the young dude who didn't give up his money? Jesus gave up his everything. Jesus wasn't asking him to do anything that he himself would not do for him. So the young man who walked away empty, we don't know what happens to him. But let me tell you this, that sin is covered in the cross by the one who gave up everything. There's not a person in this room who gives up everything. There's not a person in this room that obeys the law like that. Behold the person of the eternal son who has come, who has done that for us and died in our place. 
I got an idea. I'll trade you a $1 bill for a $20 bill. How about that? No way. No way. How, how, hey, Dad, can I, you know, can, I, can I give you this dollar and you give me a $20 bill? No way. Why not? Because one is worth more. I must say that Christ's death, is as, as, as far as value is concerned, was far more, indeed it was priceless in this gift that he has given. The disciples didn't get it. In verses 35 through 37, they're kissing up to Jesus. They're trying to gain power position, uh, political persuasion. Jesus checks them. There's not time to read it. Verse 38 through 45. And he ends saying, look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, praise God he came to serve. Praise God he didn't come to shake his fist at us and tell us we, we suck and we're not good enough. And, you know, you go figure it out and run to the hills and kumbaya and meditate and try to figure out who I am. Praise God, he said, let me tell you who I am. Furthermore, let me tell you what you have done. Furthermore, let me, let me handle that for you. We would be without hope apart from this. We would be without hope apart from him. He is worthy. And so we've looked at his worth, his wisdom. We close by looking at his worship. You have some points on your outline here. I pray that this sermon is an experience, as all sermons, as you're hearing the law of the Lord, you're hearing the good news of the Lord, you're being taught the text, that you're going through an experience deep in your souls and you respond by, by way of these things that I have in front of you in surrender. You respond by hearing the wisdom of Jesus. Consumption of the world of self-righteousness and empty materialism, empty spirituality, it leads to grief, it leads to everlasting poverty, it leads to judgment. And, it make, it, and I don't feel good saying that at all. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just sharing you the reality of what God's Word brings. We saw in verse 22... But at these words, the man was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he owned much. That's, that's what this life le leads to. People don't want to surrender. They cling to the world. They cling to their spirituality. They cling to their way. They, they, in, in the church, in, in Christian churches, they cling to this easy believerism, sort of nationalistic Christianity in North America. It, it's, you know, it's just, it's just a part of their kind of political identity going to church. They don't, they don't, they're, they're not actually willing to give up their all. Or they go to churches that prey on emotionalism and have rock show concerts and whatever. And it's just all a bunch of hoopla and whatever. But when it comes down to it, they're not, they're not willing to surrender. What is he worth to you, brother or sister? Will you give yourself to him and show that he is of infinite value to you in response to his word this morning? Will you embrace suffering as he embraced suffering? This life is full of suffering, but it's worth it. Jesus spoke, you will have treasure in heaven. You come and follow me. You live for the American dream and the picket fence and all that stuff, and you, you get that. You get that pool, and you get that timeshare, and you get that, and you get this. But will you live for his mission and, and forego that? Just, just forego that. That will come in its time. The consumption of the world of self-righteousness is going to lead to grief and it's going to lead to pain and it's going to cause you to pursue comfort and picket fences and, and, and you know, uh, uh, all these other things besides this life that he has called us to. And you this morning can be set free from this as you've heard Christ proclaimed. And I, I invite you not just to hear this, but to come to this, to come to him and receive forgiveness this morning and to embrace the one who has suffered for you and to be willing to suffer in response how much is Jesus worth to you? I've described all that he has done. He gave you life. He sustains your life. He's forgiven you of what you've done. How much is he worth to you? I think of Judas's answer to that question. 
He actually put a number on it, didn't he? Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver to Judas. Will you forfeit your soul? Will you forfeit your soul today? Because you don't want to let go? Because your price tag on the Savior is that low that you would live for other things? Behold his, his goodness. His goodness draws us to let go when we see how good He is. No one's good but God alone. He is God alone in the flesh. God's goodness is intrinsic to Him. The theologian John Gill wrote in the 1700s, God is good essentially, originally, inderivitably, the source and the fountain of all goodness. There is none good but me, says Christ. That is God. And therefore, but one God. He's inderivitably, essentially, His nature is good. And so all that comes out of Him is good. And that means that His invitation to suffer, to surrender, to let go, is coming from a place that is good. It's coming from this place of the Gospel, of, of His grace, of a salvation that isn't do, 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 but it's a, a, a salvation that comes by faith. A faith that isn't a matter of my doing, but it's a gift that, that, that comes from God, this gift that He brings within me. The, the, the ruler, look, he was a good guy. He, he did a lot of things, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Your mama might be happy, ladies, if you bring the, the young ruler home, but Jesus won't be impressed. Jesus showed him that his goodness was not found in doing good. He showed the guy that he actually wasn't good. And that was a deal breaker for him, and it's a deal breaker for people today. They don't want to believe in a God who, who reveals our, our ungoodness. They want, to, they want to believe in some other God that tells them they're fine and it's okay. But the way of life is acknowledging just that I'm not okay. Again, there's a God who is, and there's a God men want, and the two are not the same. And the God who makes us right, the God who reconciles us by faith, offers us a faith that is a powerful faith, a justifying faith that frees us from the penalty of sin in God's courtroom. But this justifying faith also gives us the power for navigating this life. And in response to hearing this word today, my prayer for you and for me as well is that this week I would be growing and seeing how worthy He is. And let's let it begin with the cup and in a moment with song. You see, He's worthy that we take this cup. He's worthy that we take this cup. If you didn't grab one on the way in, you can, there's some against the post and some in the back. He's worthy that we take this cup. You know, food has a way of reminding us of things. There's certain things that I can eat that remind me of Granny Jones, who passed away many years ago. There's foods that I, I eat that remind me the first time I had it. There's foods that you eat that take you back, nostalgia to different places. Foods that I eat that remind me of different places in the world. Here's a food that is to remind us of a different place in the world in a different time. In the first century, the sun was made flesh. As you pull the top, you have a symbol of flesh. It's just a piece of little unleavened bread. A cheap little piece of bread to boot. Right? This thing's not good. We're... We're waiting for Corona to be done so we can have some better bread, but that really drives home the point, doesn't it? That the all-worthy, right, the infinitely worthy, the priceless Son came and took on insignificant flesh. So as we eat, we remember that great gift that He did for us. You know, if you were raised in a broken home, or if you were raised, say, in a single-parent home where you had a parent who was just there for you and worked really hard. Um, my, 
my, uh, my dad kind of took my brother and I after the parents' divorce. I mean, my mom was there and stuff, but my dad was bearing the brunt of it, and he sacrificed a great deal for us. And I, you, you think of when someone sacrifices for you, you see the worth in that, and you acknowledge that, even if it wasn't perfect. You know, to be sure, my dad made mistakes. He watches online, so i got to be careful, but, uh, you know, he makes mistakes. <laughs> but I'm indebted to him. And behold, the son who made no mistake, paid for your mistake, Oh, may we respond as we pull the top off of the cup and think of how He bled out for us. He bled out for us, the innocent one, to take us off the broad gate, the broad road, and bring us through the narrow gate on the narrow road. Let's drink. Jesus told the disciples to do this as often as you can in remembrance of me. And so we gather on Lord's Day every week and we do this. And He's worthy of us to do this. He's worthy of being remembered. Every day that we remember Him and we value Him. And so now as I offer a word of prayer, and now as, the, as, as Ian comes back up and we respond in song, all of this is intentional, by the way, the way the service is organized. Beginning with the public reading of Scripture and prayer and song, and, and then we preach, and then we have communion, and then we sing again. And so again, I want to encourage you guys, those who kind of do the California come in late, come on time. Come, this service is, is intended to all come together for this experience of drawing us closer and, and displaying to Him, He's, he's worthy of, of our mourning. He's worthy of our mourning. There's people, there's people at the stadium right now for, for the game. You know, they're there right now, you know, and they're barbecuing and they've got their shirts on, they're, you know, because they're, their team is worth it. There's, there's people up north, you know, just getting tickets to come down here and tick off people down here, and, you know, because their team is worth it. There's people who are going to spend 1000 2000 3000 upward to have tickets because they say, it's worth it to be there for my team. You see, we gather because he's, he's worthy, and we gather acknowledging that we're not, and we just keep coming back humbly saying, Lord, we thank you. And this ought not to be a message that the world looks at. Oh, you Christians, you're so judgmental. You think you only have the right way and whatever. And it's like, that is so not what we're saying. You're not listening. We're saying we would be, we would be nowhere without Him. We're saying we have no standing without Him. We don't say any of this in any arrogance or pride or position. We'd be desperately lost without Him. He's so good to us. Let's pray. Let's sing. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son. We thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark. We thank you that you didn't leave us cryptic clues that we got to run around and try and piece together who you are. Oh God, I thank you that you didn't place it in me that I had to go inside of myself and try and figure out who you are. Lord, but indeed you have revealed yourself in creation, in the Christ, in our conscience a conscience that bears witness against us that we need you, we need you, we need you. We can't do it on our, on our own. Oh Lord, a, a message that humbles us uh, because we don't like admitting that we can't do it on our own. Uh, Father, I, I stand before, before your people this day and before you as I pray, acknowledging this. I'm, I'm the guy who throws away the directions and tries to put the Ikea together without it. And it, and it comes together lopsided. And Lord, my life would be that way as well because I would toss your directions, the Holy Word aside, and try to do it myself.
thank you, Father, for not leaving me to my own devices. Thank you, Father, for, for the brothers and sisters who are here as well, who know the very same thing. You are a God who rescues. You are a God who ransoms. You are a God who redeems. You are a God who returns. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Until then, hear these songs of worship, for you alone are worthy to be praised. Amen.